Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. What's going on, guys? Today on Profiling Pain, we're going to be covering Led Zeppelin. Um, so I don't think that there's anybody on the planet who doesn't know who Led Zeppelin is. There's t-shirts worn by people who have never heard of them. I mean, everybody wears band t-shirts nowadays. But anyway, we're going to be covering Led Zeppelin. Um, the reason for covering Led Zeppelin on Side Profile is because they uh, used to do a lot of shit that was accepted back in the day that is not accepted today. Um, pedophilia, fucking, uh, plagiarism. I mean, they've been hit with a lot of things, even lawsuits for plagiarism. Um, they even had their own jet that they used to do all kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know what you would say, just not appropriate things on. Um, but anyway, so we're going to get covered on Led Zeppelin today. Um, and this is, uh, entitled The Untold Truth of Led Zeppelin. I found this really good article by Adam James and Jason Eonen. So I'm going to go ahead and a lot of it is stuff that they found. Um, they, they did this back in September 8th, uh, 2017. So it's, it's a little old. Um, since then, Led Zeppelin's tried to reprise their career. I think that there's probably a, a Greatest Hits tour coming up. But uh, we're, we're going to get right into it. So Robert Plant, the singer, okay? Robert Plant almost wasn't the front man. So according... To what these guys found, it's actually hard to imagine that Led Zeppelin was fronted by anybody besides Roger Plant. And anybody who's ever listened to Led Zeppelin knows that iconic voice. Um, and he's also still the image and voice that continues to define what it means to be a rock and roll singer. Uh, now, however, Jimmy Page, the guitarist, uh, his first choice was actually going to be somebody else. Now, without Roger Plant, or sorry, Robert Plant, it probably would have been a totally different sound. But according to an article by The Telegraph, Terry Reed was actually one of Page's first choices to front the band, um, which was called the New Yardbirds at the time. Um, some of the names of these fucking bands back in the day, some of the ba- names of the bands today, really, but the Yardbirds, that's, that seems really plain Jane to me. But, you know, Led Zeppelin, I guess, doesn't sound anything too crazy either. Uh, so anyway, Reed had already signed with high-profile producer Mickey Most, who had gone ahead and attached Reed's career long nickname of Super Lungs to the gifted singer. So they could have had Super Lungs. Uh, so anyway, the sweet voice rock prodigy had little choice but to turn down Page's offer, instead suggesting the guitarist take a look at Wes Bromwich's new Greek god on the music scene. That would be Robert Plant. Um, Page did just that and obviously liked what he saw. And when joining the new Yardbirds, Plant brought along his buddy John Bonham to play the drums, and the rest is rock and roll history. Uh, John Bonham, great drummer. He's got a lot of history behind him, too. Uh, Anyway, so Reed never really went on to become a big star. His career wasn't a complete failure, but he obviously didn't get Led Zeppelin notoriety, which is probably the biggest mistake of his life. Um, So (laughs) back to band names. Uh, Led Zeppelin got a lot of flack for their name for a while. Um, they actually did a show under the title of The Knobs. All right? So many fans know that Led Zeppelin was originally called the New Yardbirds. A uh, few people, however, know that the British band once played a show in Copenhagen as The Knobs. Um, this was in England. Okay, uh, It's a reference actually 
to the man's best friend, not the dog, our other best friend, uh, the dick. Anyway, it was Led Zeppelin's saucy response to Ava Von Zeppelin, who was the granddaughter of Ferdinand Von Zeppelin, the founder of the Zeppelin Airship Company. Um, Ava threw a fit over the band using her family's namesake and even threatened legal action against the band members if they ever performed as Led Zeppelin in Denmark. Uh, in response, Page decided that the band would change its name to The Knobs for its show in Copenhagen, uh, citing the whole ordeal as absurd. Uh, the group even tried to pacify the outraged noble woman in person. So, uh, this is an actual quote from, from, from Page. The first time we played, we invited her backstage to meet us to see how we were nice young lads, which uh, is not the case. We'll get into that in a little bit. We calmed her down, but on leaving the studio, she saw our LP cover of an airship in flames, and she exploded. I had to run and hide. She just blew her top, which if you took her namesake and literally, literally torched it down on your album cover, pretty sure that they'd flip the fuck out. Uh, so now, the cover of the band's self-titled debut uh, features a grim illustration of the Zeppelin family's creation plummeting to its destruction. So her displeasure is understandable. Still, it's a good thing that the knobs didn't stick, because not only would Led Zeppelin fans probably have been called knobheads, but instead of getting the lead out, we'd all have to pull out our knobs. So, which, getting the lead out is kind of like their way of... It's like fucking any band with their tail. Like I, I wanted to have a band called Stood the Strong, so at the end of the you know at the end of the show, I'd be like, "Oh, thanks for standing with us." You know, shit like that. Just little things that bands try to come up with. Like Slipknot calls all their fans maggots, and fucking people eat that up. I went to a I went to one and only Slipknot show, and if you've never been to a Slipknot show, you should totally go. I mean, whether or not you're even into metal, it is a pretty cool fucking performance. There's a, there's a lot of I don't I don't even know how to explain it. It's just cool as shit. I went with my buddy Ben. And he was like, you gotta go, you gotta go. I'm not even really that big of a Slipknot fan. I love metal, but Slipknot for me is, like, I love Corey Taylor's voice. When he sings, Corey Taylor's the lead singer of Slipknot. When he sings, he's got a killer fucking voice. I mean, his acoustic shit is amazing. But his his scream, his actual, like, metal voice, it just has a lot of, I don't know, it leaves a lot to be wanted. I feel like it's really breathy. I don't feel like there's a lot of tone to it. He is also getting older, and he is also worth $47 million, so what the fuck do I know? Uh, so anyway, Jimmy Page actually financed the first album himself, which is pretty cool to see something like that back in the day, because nowadays everybody talks about being self-produced, self-produced, self-produced you know, which is 100% true. I just went to the store today and bought a bunch of shit to make a make at home studio. Like I have a pop filter on a nice, um, on a nice USB mic I have hooked up to the laptop right now, but, um, I actually went and got a bunch of fucking PVC pipe and, and some dampener blankets and, and a few other things so I can actually make a vocal booth. So I might actually be doing that tomorrow. And when, when I build it, um, I'm going to do the uh, the next podcast probably inside of my little contraption there and uh, see if the audio quality is any better. Anyway, so with Led Zeppelin already blowing audiences away with its explosive and dynamic live performances, Jimmy Page wanted to keep record label meddling to a minimum on the band's studio records, which, once again, fucking smart. Uh, Page financed Led Zeppelin's epic self-titled debut album known as Led Zeppelin I, or One, himself. Um, in one of his many interviews with music journalist uh, Brad Talinsky, Page explained why self-funding the first album was necessary. He said, and I quote, I wanted artistic control and a vice grip because I knew exactly what I wanted to do with the band. In fact, I financed and completely recorded the first album before going to Atlantic, which you want to maintain as much artistic freedom as possible. And a lot of these labels, you know, will, will 
try to alter your your stage persona your your I mean they'll meddle in the way that you do your music they'll change your melodies and obviously Led Zeppelin didn't need any of that shit they're one of the biggest bands in the fucking world and have been since the 70s like could you imagine if if a producer got a hold of that and did something even the minus even the most minor tweak they might have lost all that shit so bands typically receive a cash advance to record um, but Led Zeppelin showing up on Atlantic with master tapes in tow left the record label no say in the actual artistic process, which, awesome. Uh, there were other adventures to self-financing. Uh, so the first album, because Page planned ahead and knew exactly what he wanted the band to do and what they want, wanted them to be, recording costs were also kept to a minimum. So in fact, the whole recording process only took 30 hours, which is fucking amazing. How many times have you seen the band uh, and you're waiting three years for an album to come out? You know what I mean? It's That's... That's that's awesome. So uh, he said, I know because I paid the bill. 30 hours might seem a bit rushed, but it wasn't at all difficult uh, because we were well rehearsed, having just finished a tour of Scandinavia, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do in every aspect. I knew where all the guitars were going to go and how it was going to sound. So this is where the CD shit kind of comes into play. So Jimmy Page dated a 14-year-old, okay? So even in the swinging 70s where outrageous tales of groupie sex abound relations with a 14-year-old was not only socially unacceptable, but it was also against the law. Um, that shit is insane. And we're going to get into that a little bit in more detail with this other article that I found from the 14-year-old. I mean, obviously an adult now. And, and kind of what she got out of the hashtag MeToo movement and how it kind of altered her perspective. But... You know, when you think drug sex, you know, drug sex and rock and roll groupies, blah, 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 blah. Like that's that's kind of the the image of of, uh, I guess, rock, rap. I mean, everything, you name it. There's always, you know, there's always chicks parties backstage, you know. Um, there was actually an interview with uh, with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And they, so they're, they just got done playing a show. And they're sitting on a bench in like a fucking locker room or something, hanging out with Trent Reznor. And he's just one of the most boring people that this this fucking uh, magazine journalist, whatever, had, had been around. And he finally asked him, like, what? Why? why where's all the crazy stuff that you, that you usually hear about? And I guess Trent Reznor's response was, <clears throat> he said, everybody has camera phones now. Everybody's got smartphones or a way of recording you or just showing you doing something. He's like, so why in the fuck would we get crazy when it could be used against us in court or anywhere else? Like, it's crazy that the advent of technology has almost made all the the luster and and, and, and excess and fucking craziness that we all thought that being a rock star would be uh, go to the wayside. I guess I guess being a legend is is kind of like, eh, I don't you know, fucking, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I, I'm in Arizona, so our major rock radio station out here is 98 KAPD. And uh, they they went to interview Megadeth, you know, fucking Megadeth. You know what I mean? Megadeth. And they went to a fucking sushi restaurant and sipped tea and shit. He said it was one of the most boring experiences of his fucking life. So, I mean, that's also age, probably. I mean, Megadeth is getting up there. But that's just, it's crazy. No more fucking TVs flying out, hotel rooms, and, you know, now it's just like, uh, you know, hey, you want to autograph, and let's go, it, it reminds me of, like, Alice, that Alice Cooper scene in the second Wayne's World, when they get to meet, or second or first Wayne's World, but they get to meet Alice Cooper, and they're having a history lesson in the back, like, it's fucking, I don't know, that's actually more funny to me to see that they're normal people anyway, uh, so anyway, but societal norms and legal restrictions didn't stop Jimmy Page from allegedly having uh, Richard Cole, Led Zeppelin's tour manager, 
kidnap an underage teen model uh, named Lori Maddox. Now, Maddox was reportedly brought by request to Paige's suite at the L.A. Hyatt house, where she recalls falling in love with the guitar god. Maddox once explained in an interview that Paige just had this really wonderful, like, you know, calm demeanor about him. Something very mysterious and always kind of sweet. I don't know how to explain him. He's the, when you do meet him and when you do get to know him, you just immediately fall in love with him. He's so sweet. I used to stand on the side of the stage and just be in awe and say, why me? Now, 14 years old, that still sounds a little bit like you're being controlled, baited, you know? Like, you don't really know any better. And that's fucking a crazy age for that shit to happen to you. 14, fuck. Uh, so Paige wasn't alone in breaking statutory rape laws. Having sexual relationships with minors was kind of a thing for rock stars in the 70s, which now we have hashtag save the fucking children, you know? Uh, Maddox herself claims that she lost her virginity to David Bowie around the same time she began her relationship with Paige. Fucking 14 years old, just banging rock stars. Like... Where the fuck were her parents? I mean, it's the 70s. They were probably fucking high. So despite the potential of legal consequences, Paige and Maddox's relationship lasted in secret for fucking years before the guitarist finally broke it off for a woman he didn't have to keep locked up in his hotel room. Really put that in perspective. It kept it hidden for years. So fucking did she complete high school? Oh, it's just crazy to me. Um, another thing that's kind of a black eye, I mean, that's... That's pretty fucked up. There's, I mean, that's probably one of the worst things that they did, uh, especially fucking Paige, you know. But uh, another thing that they they were uh, guilty of was plagiarism, um, which is why I immediately explained where I got this article from because I am just regurgitating information that I have found. But you know, I'm not plagiarizing. You got to give. I don't know. Maybe I am plagiarizing. Fuck it. Anyway, so in addition to writing some of the greatest songs in rock and roll history, Led Zeppelin's also been accused of plagiarizing some of the greatest songs in rock and roll history. Uh, Days and Confused remains one of the band's most iconic songs, but someone else may deserve credit for the legendary track. So American folk singer Jake Holmes, who I've never heard of him, but he opened up for the Yardbirds when Paige was its guitarist before they became Led Zeppelin. Uh, he claims to have written the song. Days and Confused. Now, Holmes' version was released in 1967, two years, two years before Led Zeppelin's first debut album ever came out. So, on that debut album is where their version of Days and Confused first appeared. Now, Yardbirds drummer Jim McCarty, all right, before Bonham came along, uh, even admitted to buying Holmes' album the day after the band heard the song, saying, we decided to do a version. We worked it out together with Jimmy contributing the guitar riffs in the middle. Now, Page was credited on Led Zeppelin as the sole songwriter of Days and Confused. Now, adamantly denied ripping off Holmes, claiming, I haven't heard Jake Holmes, so I don't know what it's all about anyway. Usually my riffs are pretty damn original. What can I say? Like, that's just like blase, like, fuck it, I'm, I'm, I'm a rock god. What are you going to do to me? Fuck you. Uh, but then there's more. A lawsuit was actually filed against Led Zeppelin for ripping the guitar um, arpeggio from Spirits Taurus for the band's ultra-famous Stairway to Heaven. Like, if you know Led Zeppelin, you know Stairway to Heaven, you at least know the joke. You know, like, again, Wayne's full reference, but like, hey, no stairway! It, it's fucking an iconic song. Now, the band was actually controversially cleared of plagiarism. Um, Led Zeppelin also originally claimed to have written Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, thought the band, uh, though the band eventually gave due credit to Anne Breeden in 1990. 
and paid her substantial back royalties. Now, other Zeppelin songs were pressed with controversial credits, including You Shook Me, Black Mountainside, Whole Lot of Love, Bring It On Home, Boogie With Stew, and a whole lot more, making Led Zeppelin perhaps one of the history's most successful plagiarists. Um, now, as a musician, I say that lightly because I'm not getting paid for it, so as a, uh, a dad in a garage, um, I've come to the realization that there's not a word you could say or a fucking note you could play that hasn't already been played, said, sung, recorded, written, made money from. Uh, everybody, no matter who you are, what you're doing, is guilty of plagiarism somewhere. Um, whether it be intentionally, accidentally, everybody's guilty of it. But when you're completely stealing something, like something that makes somebody, you know, a lot of these people's careers were riding on some of these songs that Led Zeppelin did, it kind of makes you, for lack of a better word, a fucking dick. Uh, so more Led Zeppelin's debauchery. So their private jet was actually pretty fucking gross. So Led Zeppelin had a private jet called the Starship. It was actually the first Boeing 720 uh, ever manufactured, and no expense was spared on the band's behalf. Uh, the main cabin featured seats, tables, revolving armchairs, a 30-foot-long couch, a fully stocked bar with an attached electronic organ, a TV, and a video cassette player, um, which you, you gotta think, you know, 70s, that's pretty fucking good. Uh, nowadays, every headrest has that, but that's fine. Uh, in the back of the plane was a den furnished with a couch, floor pillows, as well as a bedroom decked out with a fur bedspread and a shower. Um, which, I mean, that beats a fucking tour bus, you know? Uh, the plane was also reportedly home to some of Led Zeppelin's darker debauchery. Uh, Robert Plant said his favorite memory from the Starship was receiving oral sex during turbulence, um, which I get. You know, that's, that's less work for both parties, you know. And uh, John Bonham, the drummer, uh, in addition to playing co-pilot, allegedly had the tendency to get drunk and force himself upon the stewardesses. Uh, band manager Peter Grant once brandished a gun on a flight to Pittsburgh while other passengers sniffed line after line after line after line of cocaine. Though the atmosphere on the plane was sometimes dark and sketchy, it seemed to impress journalists lucky enough to tag along for the ride. Which, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Now, though Zeppelin was the first band to lease the Starship, it wasn't the last to party like crazy abroad the Flying Gin Palace. Uh, the Rolling Stones, Deep Purple, the Almond Brothers, the Bee Gees, Elton John, Peter Frampton, and Alice Cooper also took their chances on the big jet plane, which I will say I've never heard anything negative about Alice Cooper. And he's kind of a hometown hero for Arizona, so I don't... I, I can't find anything really bad on Alice Cooper. Like, he's an all-around good dude, it seems. Anyway, uh, often stirring up the same equally ridiculous, you know, tales of drugs and sex-fueled mayhem. Uh, so Robert Plant recorded presents from a fucking wheelchair, which that doesn't sound too impressive, but as a vocalist, you realize it's a whole lot easier when you stand and sing. It's a lot better. You get a lot more air. So to do it in a wheelchair and still sound as amazing as he did, you know, it's, it's pretty good. So anyway, he was vacationing in Greece around 1975. Um, him and his family were actually in a car accident and both Plant and his wife were injured. Uh, the singer sustaining a broken ankle and elbow broke his ankle and his elbow, uh, while luckily their children only suffered minor bumps and bruises, which is good. I'm glad to hear the kids are okay. Uh, the accident left Plant in wheelchair and on crutches for almost two years, which forced the band to cancel the remainder of its North American tour. 
Now, Plant's injuries also hampered the recording of the group's seventh studio album, Presence. Uh, forced to stand and sing on crutches, the vocalist once even caught his crutch on a studio cable and took a painful tumble. So, I mean, fuck. Uh, bandmate Jimmy Page reportedly saw Plant trip and sprinted to his aid like an Olympic athlete, recalled Plant in a radio interview with New York's WNUW, so WNU FM 102.7. I'm fucking these stupid-ass radio stations. I've never seen Page move so fast in my life. For that alone, it was almost worth it, you know? Which, all right. That's cool, man. So Plant was taken to the hospital, but the ankle proved to be A-OK. Plant was reportedly so stoked at the good diagnosis, he willed himself right back into the studio, recorded the vocals for the band's masterpiece, Achilles' Last Stand. Which, right? I mean, right? Yeah, there's a there's a dad joke sitting there, buddy. Uh, anyway, and willed himself out like a boss. Uh, Jimmy Page initially wanted to cure cancer. This part is pretty interesting to me because he is what some people dub as a fucking genius on a guitar, right? Tony Iommi, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, the list goes on. So if he had only taken that awesome talent and put it towards something so great. So he always exhibited a God-given talent for the six string, but playing guitar in the world's greatest rock and roll band wasn't actually his original goal. In April 1958, a 14-year-old Page appeared on BBC's television show All Your Own, which I guess... Is essentially like their America's Got Talent, where the uh, prodigy demonstrated his guitar prowess and a skiffle, whatever the fuck that means, uh, skiffle group of musicians. I've never heard the term skiffle, and I almost read it as skittle, and now I wish I'd read it as skittle. After the performance, uh, host Hugh Weldon asked Page about his future aspirations, and Page nervously replied that he wants to do biological research to find a cure for cancer if it isn't already discovered by then, which I just saw something. I can't remember where I saw it, but it says that one of the most like regretted degrees is biological. Biologi uh, like I got a brother-in-law, who the one I always talk about, the one that owns a gun shop, and uh, he actually went to school for biological engineering and now sells firearms. So, I mean, I don't know how versatile that degree is. Um, so apparently Page's noble goal didn't last long because in an interview with ITV five years later, he was 19 years old and he spoke of different professional goals, telling the interviewer that he hoped to become an accomplished artist. Nothing that his work as a session guitarist was merely a means to fund that goal. Like, dude, if I could just get a job as a session musician, that'd be fucking awesome. Anyway, so 19 years old changes, you know, five years, which if you really think back at 14, he was on like... London's Got Talent, talking about, I want to cure cancer. And then a decade and a half later, he's fucking a 14-year-old. Complete opposite. He's not saving anybody. But to his credit, one of his teenage dreams definitely did come true. Uh, the band's name came about because of a joke. So Led Zeppelin's name, when you think about it, doesn't make much sense. Zeppelins aren't lead. If they were, multi-ton balloons would be raining on our heads every day, and who wants that? As it turns out, the name came from an attempted joke at Jimmy Page's expense. He turned the gag into one of the most famous bands of all time, so he must have enjoyed the punchline. According to The British Invasion by Barry Miles, sometimes in the late 60s, musicians Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Keith Moon, and John Entwistle, that's a cool name, started throwing around the idea of forming a supergroup, Moon. However, wasn't too optimistic of the imaginary group's potential for success. In fact, the late Who drummer, The Who, pretty fucking awesome band too, uh, and The Who are the guys that did the, I mean, they didn't know it was going to be the CSI theme song, but they did that, Who are you? Right, and that ended up becoming the uh, 
the CSI theme song. So it's, I thought that was kind of cool that it's like a crime based. You know, fuck you. I enjoyed it anyway. Uh, he said uh, would probably go over like a lead balloon. His fellow Whovian, uh Entwistle punched up the joke by saying it would go over like a lead zeppelin. So good yucks, man. When it comes, you know, when it came time for Paige to actually form the group. He borrowed the name and made it iconic. So even the fucking name was plagiarized off of a joke. At least that's how I'm going to look at it. It's, I mean, it's a good inside joke, which I had a, I was in a band when I was like 19 called Down to 30. And uh, it, most band names are fucking stupid ass inside jokes. Like we couldn't figure out a fucking name. We had like a, a we had a dry erase board full of band, potential band names and this other band, I think it was, uh, the guys were called Fracture Point, which is a pretty badass name. We're like, hey, what's your guys' name? And fucking one of us was like, oh, dude, I don't know. We're down to finally, we're down to like 30 now. And they're like, oh, down to 30 is pretty dope. And we're like, fuck yeah, that is pretty dope, which is not. It's terrible. It's a stupid band name. But we were we went by down to 30 for a year and a half. Um, anyway, so many critics despise them when they started out, all right, which... At the time, you know, it, it seems to be the story for most greatness. You start off doing something amazing, people don't like that shit, and then they come around to it, you know, and then everybody loves you. Like LeBron James, for instance, he's fucking phenomenal. He's one of the best basketball players of all time, if not the best basketball player of all time. And he is equally hated, for whatever reason, because the dude's a great guy um, and a great father. Like, fucking openly a great father. That's, that's cool as shit to me. But, yeah, great guy, but... Even with all of his greatness, for some reason, there's just some people that just can't not hate. People just have to fucking hate for some reason. So you're hard-pressed to find anyone who hates Led Zeppelin now um, until after this fucking podcast comes out, right? Am I right? Uh, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, the fans were there from the start, but it took critics a while to realize how awesome the band truly was. Um, according to Slate, while some critics, especially in the UK, adored Zeppelin, Right from the beginning, not everyone was on board. Uh, some, including some very influential ones, saw the future rock icons as nothing but loud, unoriginal, overtly sexual, bombastic blowhards. In particular, Rolling Stone absolutely fucking despise him, with critic John Mendelssohn uh, lambasting their debut album as weak and unimaginative and dubbing Robert Plant's vocals now almost universally praised as the hallowed croonings of rock god Prissy. Uh, so that's what he called him. He called him Prissy. Uh, he concluded Led Zeppelin wasn't nearly as good as the Eric Clapton slash Ginger Baker slash Jack Bruce rock powerhouse Cream, which had just broken up. The band didn't come close to brushing off such criticism. As Slate pointed out, the band was known to call out critics during interviews, especially when being interviewed by publications that had been previously negative. Good for them. Uh, it got so bad. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That according to the Rolling Stone, um, which has since reversed its position on the band, I mean, fucking obviously, uh, Zepp 
intentionally named their fourth album nothing at all. In addition, they provided no band info, no photos of the group, and gave no interviews to promote the thing. Oh, and they also made it one of the greatest albums of all time, which probably helped ward off the fucking critics. Like, fuck you, you don't see our face, you don't get to talk to us, we're not going to tell you shit, we're not going to say thank you to anybody. Boom, here's the fucking album, and that went down as one of their greatest fucking albums of all time. That is poetic justice. Uh, so their most iconic song that everybody knows, as we covered earlier, is Stairway to Heaven. And it turns out that Robert Plant fucking hates that song, which, man, my old band played the same 15 songs for like three years. And there's five, maybe five songs out of those 14, 15 that I actually still like, um, that I would still want to record and play today. But the other fucking 10, 9, 10, 11, they, they can just eat shit. Some of you just, you get so sick of the same, and the ones that you get sick of are the ones that people like the most. It's crazy. Uh, so probably the most famous song in Led Zeppelin's catalog and one of the most famous rock songs ever. And it's shocking to find anybody who hates Stairway to Heaven. Like, I even like Stairway to Heaven. Uh, you can count Robert Plant as one of the people who fucking hate it. Like, he never, ever wants to hear Stairway to Heaven again. Um, as told in Led Zeppelin 4 by Barney Hoskins, Jimmy Page absolutely adored the song, considering it the peak of the band's artistic output. Plant, meanwhile, saw virtually nothing special about the song at all. In 1988, he said he considered it a nice, pleasant, well-meaning, na- naive little song. Uh, that wouldn't be nearly as popular if its lyrics weren't so vague and ambiguous. Uh, he's apparently barely played it at all since Zeppelin's 1980 breakup, saying, I'd break out in highs if I had to sing Starry to Heaven even every fucking show he hated it uh so if you want to hear a zep vet play it live check out a jimmy page show with plant you're more likely to hear anything he did with allison kraus uh than anything about a bustle in your hedge bro which is a hedge bro which is and it's fucking just it's a reference to the goddamn song uh going to california is about Joni mitchell and earthquakes um so if stairway is one of zep's hardest songs Going to California is one of its prettiest. It's it's a gentle ballad about a beautiful, lonely woman, but there's also something about drowning in the gods, giant, noble's bleed. Who knows what Plant was getting at? Well, actually, we all do, as long as we listen to the words. According to the book, The Rough Guide to Led Zeppelin, he wrote the song to document his love for singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. The two weren't an item, but he had a massive crush on her and wanted to express it. So as Plant put it, when you're in love with Joni Mitchell, you've really got to write about it now and again. So next time you hear him sing about a girl out there with love in her eyes and big flowers in her hair, you'll know he had the big yellow taxi lady in mind. He also had earthquakes on the brain. The other part of the song, the stuff about mountains shaking and gods getting punched in the nose, is about the pains of working in California right on a fault line. In fact, when Jimmy Page was mixing the album in Los Angeles, a minor earthquake shook up the studio. Uh, So there were reasons for Plant's complaints about California, but for a woman like Joni, he was clearly willing to put up with it. Which, that's cute, except for the fact that I just covered the fact that he was married with children, and he's writing songs about another woman, but that's fine. Uh, Steve Marriott of the Small Faces was asked to be the singer after Plant left. As mentioned earlier, Terry Reed was initially pegged to... Oh, I'm sorry. Probably before uh, Plant. Anyway, as mentioned earlier, Terry Reed was initially pegged to be Led Zeppelin's frontman, but he wasn't the only non-Plant to be offered the gig. According to Mick Wall's book, When Giants Walked the Earth, a biography of Led Zeppelin when first conceptualized the supergroup that would become Zeppelin, Page considered Steve Marriott a singer of British rock band The Small Faces. In fact, 
When he pitched the idea to Marriott, the singer was quite interested. So why didn't it happen? Threats of violence, basically. Shortly after he extended the offer, Page received a message from Marriott's business handlers. How would you like to play guitar with broken fingers? So, no, turns out Marriott's manager was Don Arden, a guy who called himself an Al Capone of pop and conducted music business mafioso style. Uh, he bragged about to the wall, uh, I'm fucking hanging Robert Stigwood over a balcony for daring to try to take Steve Marriott away from me. You didn't think I'd let some little schlamel, 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 schlamel from the Yardbirds have him? So that rather violent rejection took the wind out of the page of cells, and soon everybody went back to their respective bands. But later, obviously, Page would resurrect the idea and run with Robert Plant. History was made, and no fingers were broken, which is fucking crazy, because how many times have we heard about Vanilla Ice being hung over a balcony? Or I just the first one I did about Frank Sinatra, very mafia-oriented. I mean, I have a feeling as I go through a lot of these older bands, I think the mafia might pop up a lot. Which is kind of cool. I mean, kind of scary, but kind of cool. Um, so, this is all little, like, tidbits here and there of, of other information. So, it's just, just little cool things I found was cool. Like, Jimmy Page actually owned Alistair Crawley's house. <sighs> I don't know if I'm going to do an episode on Alistair Crawley. I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of crime in there. That's that's more for, like, if you want a really, really good... Um, Alistair Crawley episode, if you know the name and you're interested in it, he, he started like this crazy sex cult. It's all fucking magic based. I mean, it, it's it's insane. But he's a very interesting character in history. And, and Alistair Crawley uh, paved the way for guys like, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of all these all these crazy cults, but who, who started fucking uh, Scientology? What the hell is his name? L. Ron Hubbard. Alistair, L. Ron Hubbard actually, I think, I think it's L. Ron Hubbard actually met Alistair Crawley. There's just, I mean, a bunch of crazy shit. There's Alistair Crawley, his name gets brought up a lot and a lot of crazy shit. And so anyway, um, but last podcast on the left actually did a really, really, really fucking good Alistair Crawley episode. They did the whole cult thing. Um, I'm going to cover cults, so maybe I'll get around to Alistair Crawley, but they did a, they did a really good one. Um. I would, I would suggest listening to that because I don't know if I'm going to do Alistair Crawley or not. So check out last podcast on the left. Check out their check out their Alistair Crawley. Um, actually, last podcast on the left is is a good true crime. They also do uh, they also do aliens. They do I wouldn't say they're a variety show. They're more like true crime, cryptozoology, and aliens, and then a little bit of politics here and there. But they're 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 pretty fucking good. Um, so anyway, Jimmy Page once owned Alistair Crawley's house. Now, while not a master of the actual dark arts that we know of, uh, because there's a lot of child sacrifice in dark arts, and he was fucking a 14-year-old, Yeah, he was certainly interested in him. Uh, in- interested enough to buy what some might call the most evil house in Britain. Uh, that would be Alistair Crawley's uh, Boleskine house, which the occultist magician bought in the 1800s, as described by the Scotsman Page, a Crowley fanatic, bought the house in the 1970s, and though he never really lived there, he visited enough to permanently tie it to the public eye. Uh, being filmed in and around the house and Zeppelin documentary, the song remains the same, uh, certainly helped with that perception. The person who actually lived there, Page's childhood friend Malcolm Dent, stayed there for 20 years before Page sold the place. In that time, Dent actually claims he didn't observe anything particularly evil, but there were some things that made him wonder, as he told the 
Inverness Courier in a 2006 interview. Doors would be slamming all night. You'd go into a room and carpets and rugs would be piled up. Uh, even though he's a self-described skeptic, Dent couldn't explain why any of this was happening. But since Crowley's ghost would likely be up to something more sinister than slamming doors and pulling rugs, the place probably wasn't haunted. Maybe Paige was sneaking in at night and playing jokes on his old house sitting buddy, I guess. Um, they really hated releasing singles. Technically, in their native England, Led Zeppelin is a one-hit wonder. That one hit, by the way, didn't come until 1997, 17 years after the band broke up. So, a billboard described it as Led Zeppelin was an album-oriented band that, for the most part, hated releasing singles. At the time, most radio radio singles were under three minutes, and Led Zeppelin rarely went that short. If they did, like with Communication Breakdown, they were largely okay with a single because it didn't need to be edited down. But then Atlantic wanted to release Whole Lot of Love as a U.S. single. So many radio stations there, particularly AM ones, were very nervous about playing a six-minute song where the bridge was a bunch of weird sounds and moans of sexual ecstasy. So they edited the bridge out, keeping only the beginning and the end in the song. The uh, enraged Zeppelin, who cared about the art remaining intact, way more than any calculated business decisions, which that's cool that they held true to that the entire time. Like, I, I that part of them I respect. Um, in response, the band refused to release a UK version of the single, which remained a practice for their entire career and beyond. No Led Zeppelin songs were released in England as singles until a remastered version of Whole Lot of Love appeared on the Billboard charts in 1997. Those spunky young kids had it in them all along. Um, they, uh, they broke up, and then they tried to do a bunch of revitalization tours, and uh, I even read an article recently that, that Bonham, or I think Bonham died. It, uh, Jimmy Page has been trying to... I, I actually saw um, one of my earliest memories of Jimmy Page besides Led Zeppelin uh, was I saw him and Puff Daddy perform together on Saturday Night Live, which, you know, there's there's that. So that's probably my earliest memory of Led Zeppelin. And then everybody, everybody knows that fucking, I don't know what I've been told. Everybody knows that fucking song. Everybody knows Stairway to Heaven. Uh, so anyway... I found another cool article, and we're going to get more into Maddox on this one. Uh, it's called Led Zeppelin's Controversial Legacy, Thievery, Underage Groupies, and the Mud Shark Incident. Uh, it's done by Stereo Williams, uh, Stereo Williams sorry. and uh, this was last updated January 16th of 2019. Um, so here we go. Let's do this. So, like I said, Led Zeppelin released their earth-shattering debut album on January 12th, 1969, announcing the quartet as the hair... Sorry harbingers of the sort of epic hard rock that would become the force unto itself in the decade to come. Uh, the band was famously derided as obnoxious music for lunkheads by many critics during its early peak. They fucking hated them, but proved to be extraordinarily popular and unforeseeably enduring. For many Led Zeppelin fans, it is the greatest hard rock band of all time, maybe the greatest rock band in any discipline. But this band, born out of the Yardbirds, and bolstered by the blues, has a legacy that can't easily be reduced to just Page's big riffs and Bonham's drums and Plant's wail. Fifty years later, what Led Zeppelin represented is something more damning than most of us would like to admit. We're going to get into that right fucking now. So the band's musical heritage, its public image, and its extensive influence are just in connected to some of the most damning cliches of classic rock. Almost a pilfering of the blues, a penchant for hedonistic excess, the romanticizing of 70s groupie culture that preyed on naive, sometimes underage girls. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all a part of what Zeppelin was, and it all makes their legacy continuously and increasingly 
just polarizing. Um, rock music was rapidly changing in 1969, a decade that had begun the several or yeah, this was several of rock and roll stars of the 50s suddenly and unceremoniously removed from the forefront of popular music. Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry, and Buddy Holly. Reason being, Little Richard became a minister, Chuck Berry was in prison, and Buddy Holly was dead at 22, which the 27 Club is a pretty cool, I mean, obviously nobody here is on that list, but the 27 Club is this conspiracy theory that a lot of these big name actors and celebrities and musicians die at 27, and there's a long fucking list ranging from everybody from uh, Jim Morrison from The Doors to fucking Brittany Murphy, like crazy Dean Martin. There's a whole fucking list of people who are dead at 27, and it's called the 27 Club. It happens, and and Jim Morrison's a pretty cool pretty cool character too uh, if you never listen to the doors it, it's it's pretty good shit uh watch watch the movie the doors with val kilmer he did a really good uh impression or did really good acting as jim morrison but jim morrison at the time was the head of counterculture like he i, I don't even know how to explain it how mm, how this generation today is essentially counterculture they're fighting back against the norms that's what jim morrison was but jim's jim morrison's dad was like some brigadier fucking rear admiral on like he was the epitome of naval fucking professional and he had a really so he was the forefront of normalization and culture whereas his son his legacy was the commander of counterculture it's it's a pretty cool dynamic jim morrison had a very interesting fucking life um so anyway, that era was ending with an entire generation of artists who'd been elevated to a level of cultural import that landed them at the center of national dialogues on everything from long hair to Vietnam. Charles Manson and Woodstock would both become flashpoints that summer, but early in the year, a loud self-titled debut album by Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, and John Bonham provided as clear an indication as any as to where rock was going. Um, and we're going to do Charles Manson. Uh, next season we're doing cults. So Richard Ramirez is coming up next, a little bit of R&R, and then next season is going to be cults. So we're going to get into some Charles fucking Manson. Um, now, while it should be obvious that Led Zeppelin's brand of muscular, sweeping hard rock has a voice that is altogether the band's, it should be just as blatant that Zeppelin made a habit of re sorry, rehashing songs without sharing credit. We covered all that shit. Uh, and the list goes on. Babe, I'm going to love you. As, you know, traditional. Uh, let's see here. So they had a lawsuit, I Can't Quit You Baby, from their debut, were also credited to legendary blues songwriter Willie Dixon. I mean, the the list goes on. Anywhere you turn, you're actually finding a lot of plagiarism issues. Um, so Paige heard that song, uh, the one that he did, Babe, I'm Gonna Love You, um, stolen from Willie Dixon, via Joan Bays and assumed it was public domain after it was similarly credited to her 1962 album, Joan Bays, in concert. It was actually written by folk singer Anne Breeden, who was given a share of the royalties and co-author credit for Zepp's track after being made aware of it in the 1980s. Singer-songwriter Jake Holmes sued the band in 2011. We covered all, I mean, he sued him in 2011. We covered all shit. Now, early Led Zeppelin classics like Whole Lot of Love, the Lemon Song, um, are other instant, you know, famous instances of nicking that found Zeppelin on the receiving end of litigation. And for a lot of people, the band's name is forever connected to wanton plagiarism, which we covered at fucking BAM. So anywho, Led Zeppelin's peak epitomized rock's most erogeously excess-driven 
period. And while it has been romanticized in pop culture via movies like Almost Famous, that period represented just how normalized fans, media, and enablers were when it came to some of music's most depraved personalities. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll became a mantra, and groupie culture became a chic. But it wasn't just a big post-1960s party. Looking back now, the 70s classic rock era looks like the libido run amok. Um, we're going to get into some names here. Now, with some glaring examples of just how dark the public would allow its favorite rockers to be without ever calling them into question, Zeppelin's stories were often fictional, but made them heroes to teenage boys who wanted to be rock stars. And much like Zeppelin's actual music, uh, proved to be a template for what would become depressingly cliched by the time hair metal hits the 80s. Um, it is from rumors of satanic worship to wild man stories involving drummer John Bonham's endless drinking. It's sometimes hard to separate what's historical fact and what's silly folklore with Led Zeppelin. An infamous story involving a female fan and a mud shark added to Zeppelin's righteous notoriety, sorry, but it's never been confirmed as true. The band always denied it, and members of Vanilla Fudge have claimed culpability. But Page's relationship with a 14-year-old Lori Maddox wasn't the stuff of urban legend. Maddox revealed that Page had a, ro uh, a roadie bring Maddox up to a suite in L.A., the Hyatt House, and would keep her sequestered from the public for extended periods in the hopes of protecting himself from statutory rape charges. The 70s rock groupie scene was documented by the popular rock mags of the era, and Lori was known as Lori Lightning, and she and her friend, Sable Star, were famously referred to by rock stars as the baby groupies due to their being underage. Sable reportedly lost her virginity at 12 years old to Randy California of Spirit, and Iggy Pop wrote a 1996 song called Look Away about having sex with her when she was 13 years old alongside stories involving Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger being from uh, the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart, Maddox would reveal that David Bowie slept with her when she was 14, and after Jimmy Page saw her at a show, he had his bodyguard kidnap her. She told The Guardian last year, uh, this is 2018 at this point, when, he, when she told The Guardian, that the hashtag MeToo led to her reconsidering how she'd viewed her time with Page and other rock stars in the 1970s. This is the kind of shit that hashtag MeToo actually did and helped people. Um, I've already covered how I felt about Weinstein, but this shit right here, this is different. Now, I think this is her talking. I think that's what made me start seeing it from a different perspective because I did read a few articles and I thought, shit, maybe. She said in regards to whether she'd been exploited and abused by Paige, which, fucking yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question. I never thought there was anything wrong with it, but maybe there was. I used to get letters telling me he was a pedophile, but I'd never think of him like that. He never abused me, ever. Which, that sounds fucking, man... That's a victim, you know? Um, she goes on to say, I don't think underage girls should sleep with guys. I wouldn't want this for anybody's daughter. My perspective is changing as I get older and more cynical. Uh, so maybe we should all be a little more cynical about Led Zeppelin. Following Cream and Hendrix, they helped shape hard rock at the end of the 1960s. They would go on a run of albums that hold up remarkably well, and the musical alchemy of Page, Plant, Jones, and Bonham is one of rock's most distinct but you can't get through any of that without wading through the dirt that comes along with their history when examined through today's lenses. There will be a lot of people talking about this band on occasion of its debut album, Turning 50. Uh, here's hoping 
those conversations at least attempt to be honest about the whole lot of what Led Zeppelin truly was, which was plagiarism, pedophilia, uh, and just all around Tom fuckery. But I mean, you're gonna have that. Like we said, 60s, 70s, people got away with a lot more. Um, and as we go through with these side profiles, man, uh, it's it's very interesting to see. So I, I said something out loud the other day. Uh, I was talking about a band that I like called Front Porch Step. And uh, it's, it's just cool, chill, kickback, acoustic music. You can't be metal all the time. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. But uh, check them out, Front Porch Step. Give them a listen. And... And I had my cousin and her boyfriend over, and he said, oh, yeah, I don't. I used to like front porch stuff, but I don't really listen to him anymore because that guy's not a very good person. Now, I haven't done any research, and he didn't go into detail, so I don't know what that means. So I'm not going to, what's the word I'm looking for? Your Sully, that dude's name. That dude's name. But uh, uh, front porch step, not, not Jared. Jared's a good dude. I like Jared. But uh, so I don't know. But then there's that old saying of... Uh, you know, you can like the art and not the artist, which it seems like the more and more we go on these things, we're going to get to that point. Like, if you remember on the Jam Master J episode, the dude had everything. He was a fucking trendsetter. He was amazing. I mean, just everything he did, everything he, he had the fucking Midas touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. But he's still selling drugs. He's still, you know, doing his dirt on the side. I think, I think that there's a lot of people where either you start off a little shifty and you never lose it. But you get to where you want to be, and that helps you, you know, hustle and flow, right? But then you got the other people where you reach a certain amount of stardom, and you fucking think you're untouchable. And you pull some stupid shit, and you continuously do stupid shit. And unfortunately, it seems like the more research I do, it always comes back somehow to harming fucking children. I don't know what the fuck that's about. You know, drugs, do drugs. That, that hurts nobody but yourself. I mean, unless you got a family, you know, but I mean, you, you know what I mean. Physically, it hurts yourself. Um... You want to get lost in a bottle, get lost in a fucking bottle. You you know, groupies, if they're consenting adults and they're willing to go back there, have all the fucking drug-filled orgies you want. But for Christ's fucking sake, ID at the goddamn door. You know, use the black lights. You know whether or not it's real. But, anywho, I digress. Uh, I'm not a rock star, so I guess I don't know the amount of stress that they're under and why they would do that. There's no fucking reason. I'm just bullshitting. They're, they're pieces of shit. But, you know, you could still enjoy the art and not the artist. That's, I think that's how we should all be. So, anywho, uh, yeah, it's it's in a, in, a, in a hashtag Me Too movement world, we still have uh, songs like WAP coming out. Crazy. So, anywho, uh, it's December. Like I said, next week will be the first installment of Richard Ramirez, which, holy shit. I just, man, that, that one's going to need a palate cleanser. Uh, fuck. If you don't know anything about Richard Ramirez, you know, and you, if you're going to wait for me to explain Richard Ramirez to you, that's fine. But if you like to kind of have knowledge on these cases and know it yourself, um, check out some shit on that before the first episode drops. Obviously, we're going to start off with, you know, childhood and maybe lead into his first murder or if I can't find enough on his childhood. Because I just kind of jumped straight into his case and his murders. I didn't, I kind of glanced over his childhood and he is a fucking sick and twisted prick. Um, yeah, fuck. But, you know, if you if you want to look into him, he's interesting. But, yeah, we're going to start off with his childhood. Um, let's find out as much information as I can, maybe get into the first couple murders or whatever else or, or see where it went from there. And then uh, after Richard Ramirez, that'll be the end of Season 2, and we're going to kick off in January with, uh, with a cult. I'm not sure if I want to do um, 
Charles Manson, or if I want to do Jonestown. Um, if you have any suggestions on which cult I should do first, this time I'm not doing anything based in time. Like I, I'm not gonna do 1970s only. I'm I'm just gonna fucking go for it. So if uh, if you have a cult you want me to do, um, centartainment at gmail.com. That's centaur with a C. I always put the link in the show notes. Um, Facebook.com forward slash profiling pain podcast. If you guys want to hop on that shit. I should really do more with my social media. Also, by the time the Richard Ramirez shit drops, hopefully there will be t-shirts at Teespring, Teespring forward slash Profiling Pain Podcast. So um, I'll be doing the first amalgamation of t-shirts. And then that's about it. So uh, get your vaccines as they're coming out in December. And uh, a side note, real quick, uh, the first person to receive vaccines, I believe, was a 94-year-old Freemason woman in London. So I don't know if that means anything or if it's just happenstance. And I got a lot of buddies that are Freemasons, so I don't know that that really fucking matters. But it's cool to be conspiratorial. Anywho. But yeah, Pfizer, Moderna, all that shit. Um, keep an eye out. Watch out for that temporary bell pause, or Bell's palsy that they do, which is essentially it numbs the fuck out of your face and you end up looking like Rocky. Um... And that's it, man. So ageofradio.org. Check out everything on there. Um, like, subscribe, share. Apple Podcasts. If you got an iPhone, it'd be really cool if you... I know everybody's listening on Spotify. Um, iHeartRadio is a big one. But if you can go to Apple Podcasts and just leave me five stars, three stars, one star, doesn't fucking matter. Just put a goddamn star in a comment. Even if you're telling me I'm a piece of shit, just uh, do that. Um, the Instagram, same thing, Instagram, Profiling Pain Podcast. Um... And that's it. I hope you guys have a really good holiday. Uh, hopefully you guys aren't spending too much money. Hopefully you guys are being safe. And uh, yeah, just stay the course. Stay strong. Stay positive. And if you guys are are a little uh, alone during this holiday season and, and podcasts is all you have to listen to and shit like that, which I understand. I listen to a lot of podcasts and it gets me in a good mood. Um, if you need somebody to talk to, fuck it. You know, just... Uh, Start chatting on the Facebook page or, or send a funny fucking picture to the Instagram. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'll message you guys back, email, whatever, you know, if you just need someone to bullshit with. Um, also, if you guys play any Xbox Live, Omega Twiz on Xbox, that's me too. So, whatever, we'll hang out. Anywho, um, that's it. So, thank you guys. That was Led Zeppelin. And then uh, we'll figure out who the next musician is after Richard Ramirez. So, uh, yeah, stay metal, mofos.